Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald Interviews. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by writer Paul Jenkins, writer of works you might know like Wolverine Origins, Inhumans, Civil War Frontline, Alters, God Complex, and many, many more. Paul, thanks so much for joining. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Dave. How are you doing? I am doing all right. I, I have to stay in the lower registers of my vocals because of a, a little cold <laughs> the kids brought home, so I may yeah. sound uh, more baritone than usual, but uh, but other than that, I'm doing just fine. Um, so, Paul, with the with the My Marvelous Year Reading Club, where we go through the history of Marvel Comics from its origins to today, we take a year-by-year -year approach. We read the curated, my, my picks for the best and most essential comics every year of Marvel Comics, and we're up to the 2000s. So we're up to like 2001, 2002 right now. We've been reading the Marvel Knight stuff, and that, of course, includes a lot of your work that a lot of fans have enjoyed over time that have been some of, uh, definitely for me, getting into Marvel Comics, some of the most important books that I read at that time. Uh, I want to talk a bit about that. How did you get started? With your coming, you're at that time, you had written Hellblazer for a good amount of time with Sean Phillips, which it blows my mind. That was like... That was like your first writing gig. Like, it's not like you hadn't been around comics, right? You'd been an editor. You'd work with some incredible talent. But you kind of just waltz in and and take over Hellblazer, post-Garth Ennis, for five years with Sean Phillips on a really good run. That's your resume. How do you get started with Marvel on Marvel Knights? What, was, what, do, what are your memories there? What was that process like? Well, first of all, you can blame Alan Moore for me doing Hellblazer because I was his editor okay. on big numbers and, and that. And I was over at his house in Northampton, England and at the time I lived in, in Northampton, Massachusetts, where we did Ninja Turtles and Tundra. And I sort of sat with Alan at one point and I said, thinking of writing Alan, and he was like, You should do it. <laughs> it's like his fault. So I got onto Hellblazer, nobody knew who I was. And um during that time, <clears throat> Jay Lee and I used to talk to each other all the time about doing a crossover between Hellshock and Hellblazer. Mm. And Hellshock was was uh, was Jay's big project, but he was in a place where he really wasn't delivering it. He wasn't getting it done. I think he had he had mentally sort of put himself into a corner. And I'm sure Jay won't mind me saying that because it just was that moment where Jay, you know, what people have to understand, it's not like Jay wasn't putting stuff together, but Jay being Jay, he was never satisfied with his work. And so he would finish an entire page, as I understand it. I've, I've talked with him about it. And he'd, he'd bin it. He'd throw it in the trash. Yeah. You know, yeah. he wouldn't he wouldn't be satisfied with his with his creative work. So every time we talked about doing Hellblazer, Hellshot crossover, you know, the, the problem was that I don't think Jay was in the place to mentally and professionally to really do it. We could never really think of anything to do. Um, but what was cool was that we wanted to work together. So one day I'm minding my own business. And then this is going to go back to the, the challenge of, of me, uh, minding my own business. Jay gives me a call and he says, I've been talking to Joe and Jimmy from event comics, you know, and I, I knew them very, I knew them a little bit, uh, it's Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti, and they're the people who started, you know, Marvel Knights. So he said, you know, I've been talking to them about they've got some gig over at Marvel. Would you be interested in working for Marvel? And I said, yeah, you know, why not? Right. Like I, I like superhero comics. I grew up with 2000 AD primarily. So I'm not really a big reverent kind of superhero fan. 
and and this was typical of me you know it's, it's just i i don't really know too much about the history of comics and you know i'm not a huge like fanish kind of person i don't really do fan stuff that much mm-hmm. um i've got one fan thing that i allow myself to do i'm a big crystal palace football club supporter that's it and then i you know so everyone <laughs> okay. has a bit of fandom in them that's my thing and then i wasn't really gravitating to like tv shows or anything like that anyway mm-hmm. so um so he said yeah you know they 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 said that I could do anything I want to and work with anyone. And I, I really would like to work with you. How do you feel about the Inhumans? And, you know, sort of famously said, yeah, they sound great. Who are they? Cause I had no idea who they were. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, and I, I, it just has been something that either infuriates people or they understand. Um, I don't know that much about the history of comics. I haven't spent my time reading these books. And to me, that was always an advantage that I had because I wasn't stuck mm-hmm. trying to speak to existing continuity. I hadn't been influenced by a bunch of that stuff. So I come in, I write a 12 issue pitch for Inhumans and we get a little bit of pushback at the time. I don't think that, that anybody except Joe and Jimmy was really ready for Marvel Knights internally at Marvel. Yeah. Um, I, I think that they had a lot of like resistance at times. Um, but anyway, so we pitched this thing. I've never heard of the Inhumans. Um, and again, somewhat famously, because I've told the story quite a few times, but basically they send me a couple of five-page Jack Kirby stories of the Inhumans. And I'm like, that's it. Do me a favor. Don't send me anymore. I don't want to read the rest of it. Mm-hmm. This is it. I get it. I understand what I can do with this. And so I wrote this pitch, like not knowing the things I couldn't do. And that was what really took off with the Inhumans, was that I did a take that nobody had done and, and they constantly told me the Inhumans never sells. It never sells. It never lives up to its billing. It, it always gets canned. And we managed mm-hmm. to get 12 issues of a maxi series that won an Eisner Award. So we did okay. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's famously like the go-to for an Inhumans comic. I mean, it's definitely one that I have. On Comic Book Herald, I do a lot of guides for helping people like get into Marvel Comics. Mm-hmm. And I joke, but like I have pushed this Inhumans book probably on more readers than any, like more than Marvel (laughs) because it's a great entry point into Marvel Knights and into the canon. Now, when you were getting pushback at the time, um, do you remember like what were the kinds of things that Marvel seemed like on edge about? I would imagine that there was some internal concern at Marvel, right? Um, That had nothing to do with me in the book and, and nothing to do with Jay and I. Um, I think that Marvel had been through its bankruptcy and was in its bankruptcy, Chapter 11. Yeah. Um, I would imagine that people looked at Joe and Jimmy being a part of this, and they were like, who are these guys? And in fact, in yeah. fact I'm, I'm almost certain that that's what happened. Um, and, 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 you know, a lot of people have been in and out, a lot of people getting fired, right? Like, here's your pink slip, you know, okay, let's hire someone else. Okay, here's your pink slip. So, you know, you're talking about a company that's relatively chaotic. And, and I just remember th- this just the, the moment, you know, for me, I didn't know anybody at Marvel, right? I hadn't done anything at Marvel. I'd done DC, really. And, and um, mm-hmm. I'd come from nowhere anywhere. I mean, when I got Hellblazer, I had no idea what I'd done. I literally applied to get the Hellblazer gig and showed up in San Diego and said, can I write the book? And the editor said, uh you must be crazy okay let's have a go and then i ends up being the writer of hellblazer that's how i broke in so i I, I didn't know everybody in comics i didn't know all of that stuff i didn't know the editorial process and um i was i came to marvel because joe and jimmy asked me to come and like 
you know, basically show Marvel what we were doing. I mean, I came with this 12-issue maxi-series and, and basically, you know, the editor-in-chief at the time sort of like came running across the hallway and I said, oh, hi, how are you? And and the, the, they just walked up to me and said, i got to tell you something. I don't think the humans is going to sell. I think it'll be canned after the first issue. And then walked off and I said, well, nice to meet you. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> I could, you know, it just it was really wacky. And uh, so the pushback a little bit was more that they didn't think that Marvel Knights was going to be a thing, but it really was a thing, wasn't it? Obviously, it, it oh, did yeah. really well. Yeah, yeah, no, it was definitely, I mean, it was huge. I mean, it's it drives, I think, even where Marvel and, and frankly, the big two are at today. Um, and your work is a big part of that. So within Humans, you, ha you don't have the fanish continuity background, you're saying, you know, so you, you get those Kirby stories, you're introduced to the characters, you're like, okay, I got this. What were the elements? I, I mean, I think we can see it right from the run. And for those of us who have read it, and if you haven't, you're listening to this, I highly recommend you do so. Um, but you really honed in on their their internal society, their the sort of the structures of their government in a lot of ways, right? And this monarchy and this royal family and these sorts of things. Um, what was most important to you? And I guess in the same vein, like when, because the Inhumans are still a franchise that Marvel struggles with, and whether it's adapting to other mediums, whether it's additional comic series, what what for you was like the core that you feel like made that thing work? Well, first of all, I, I don't find it that difficult. I think if Marvel really want to make them, they should probably give me a call, right? Because understanding, <laughs> you know, how to do that. I mean, I, I would say this. Uh, I saw these first, jack kirby stories and i went oh well, this is a metaphor for america i can see this like first of all and you have to go back in the day and in fact we've been through quite a lot in the united states ever since that came out that was 1999 or 1998 when that came out at the time black bolt was an, an amazing metaphor and frankly now it's just a cautionary tale for the king or the president or the leader who cannot speak his mind because when they say something the world blows up and look what's happened in politics since we've now elected people who don't care and say things i think you know that, that are on their mind across the world and look at the constitutional crisis that it caused that was a cautionary mm. tale 25 years ago that i wrote about about that right so black yeah. was that the second issue we did was about the the kids going through the terrigen mist and it was very much about like puberty and emerging into adulthood. And I remember the first issue came out and people quite liked it. The second issue came out and the internet exploded, the internet of the time. Like why? Was it backlash? Oh, <clears throat> no, 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 it was great. Everybody went, this is the most amazing comic I've ever read. Oh, and okay, it good. Was, it was just a, okay. You know, I had no idea. I was like suddenly caught up and swept up in this mania. In humans spoke, in humans two, issue two especially, spoke to an audience that said, wow they're doing you know the kid look at these amazing characters um and then i did one about the alpha primitives because it seemed like such a metaphor for the emancipation of black america where people mm -hmm. were freed because you know marvel had realized they had slaves and so they freed them but what had they done i wrote the issue you know essentially those alpha primitives had now gone to live in the substructure and they were free yeah. but they weren't free you know they weren't afforded the same opportunities as, as people in a human society. And essentially, human society was based on, you know, your power was your place in society. So you might be the, you know, you might come out as a kid, you might come out and be, um, 
you know, a flying, a flying inhuman, and now you get great status. But you might come out, and you know, there was one little character that we did who who just could do tattoos on people. That was his power, mm-hmm. and so he became mm-hmm. a tattoo artist and lived at the bad end of town. It was all about American society and just what had happened with this power based class-based money-based struggle it wasn't a political commentary at all it had nothing to do with that i don't i don't do politics i'm an old punk right i don't like politics at all so i don't talk about it that much but i think you know it's part it's part of our world so we write about it and um so i just wrote that i just put that all into the book and it really came together i think people saw that and liked it it spoke to them yeah yeah no it's i mean through the the inhuman society it's it's we often talk about the mutant metaphor you know on the marvel side of things gets a lot of attention um, but I think that run is one of the the few that says, okay, Inhumans can do that um, mm-hmm. as a metaphor, but on frankly a a bigger structural basis. Um, and it, yeah, no, it definitely definitely resonates. I think even today, like you said, like yeah, talk about cautionary tales about <laughs> the dangers of speaking your mind too often, and how how much we've seen that over the last several years. Um, okay, cool. And then obviously Jay Lee's art on it is just you know, I mean, amazing. Um, mm-hmm. It's definitely just like a perfect collaboration. I mean, at that time. Did you, because you're you go on a run there where you're you're with Sean Phillips, Jay Lee, Mark Buckingham on Spectacular Spider-Man. Like, did you have any idea how good you had it? <laughs> like, like, I had <laughs> no, I had no idea. I broke into comics in a way that's just bonkers, you know, like just showing up at San Diego and saying, "Like, can I write Hellblazer?" And they're like, "Okay," mm-hmm. you know, like that is not how you do it. But I just, I must have shown them something when I handed in my first script. Because I know, that, I know for a fact, you know, Lou Stathis, my, my editor, uh, who, who, was, who I have such gratitude towards for taking that chance on me. And, and Karen Berger, I have such gratitude to her for, for giving me my career, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's an amazing sort of situation to just be a guy that nobody knows. And to come from nowhere, Lou told me that there were 25 established professional writers that tried out for Hellblazer and he gave me the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't know that there's another story like that in comics, to be quite honest. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly hard to imagine anything like that today. Yeah, um, and so, so with, the, the, yeah. with the artists, sorry, apologies, um, with the artists... Yes, I had the most amazing opportunity to work with people. I learned so much from Sean, especially. I can remember early on writing a panel. I used to write like Alan did. I used to over-describe my panels, and um, but I wasn't Alan. <laughs> and I remember writing this whole thing. I think there was value and context in it because I wrote about the, the British Civil War, and I really wanted him to kind of feel like he was there. My whole point was... I, I don't want it to feel like a piece of history. I want to feel like we're in the battle and there are people there. I write this yeah. whole panel description and he draws the pikes going to war. And I'm like, that's a, that's a perfect image. Like all the stuff I described, but it was for a panel and you drew just the pikes walking along with, with stuff hanging from them. That mm-hmm. was what you needed to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's cool. So you mentioned they're editing Alan Moore. You mentioned this a couple of times. This is on Big Numbers, which was famously, yeah. I mean, one of the great what ifs in comics history. In the early yeah. '90s, he he collaborates with Bill Sienkiewicz. There's a planned 12 issue series, um, Big Numbers. Honestly, hard to even describe. What <laughs> it's basically about everything. Um, do you think that had that come out, that it would be like the Watchmen, Sandman, instant classic level of? you know, just like all-time instant classic thing? Um, I was privileged to see 
and not many people had ever seen it. Alan's 12 issue visual breakdown of every episode, every one of the 12 issues he was going to write. He had a character arc for an arc for each character through every issue. And he had it on this giant square grid and he showed it to me and I was just blown away by the detail that he had put into it. the 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 understanding of his own work I think is it, it taught me a lesson as a writer I'm like okay I got to be like that I got to do that mm. yes it it was and would have been the it, it's really it's really his Samuel Taylor Coleridge Kubla Khan isn't it it's the unfinished work of Alan Moore that everyone mm. should have seen I talked to him about it afterwards a couple of years after and said Alan you know would you would you ever think about it he's like I just think that ship has sailed, but mm-hmm. I didn't think it sailed. And the reason it had sailed was a couple of there's a couple of reasons. Number one, Alan is so old school that I think even now, although I don't know this for sure because I haven't talked to him in a few years, I think he he doesn't write on a computer. I think he still writes on a typewriter. Mm. So he would type up that issue and be in as quirky as he is. He wouldn't even copy it. I don't think he would just send it. So he sent in issue three to me and issue four. Bill was working on issue three. Um, and, um, you know, issue four was being drawn by Bill's former assistant. And then, you know, Bill, getting getting that out of Bill at that time was like, gave me a bleeding stomach also. I was 23 years old. It was awful. Yeah. But I'm really good friends with Bill now. Like, like I love Bill. Like, we're, we're very good friends. Um, but but he, he Bill's always like mildly apologetic to me. By the way, <laughs> every time he talks to me, it's sort of like, yeah, I really put you through it, didn't I? Um, and then and then you know, obviously issue four, just you know, it blew to pieces. So it it, it was literally torn up and thrown away. Um, mm. When the artist had had a real challenge with it, um, I think there was some mental health issues, obviously going on and, and stuff like that. But at that point the you know issue four's script was lost and i don't know that alan could really recreate it i don't know where the yeah. copies are i'm sure we made copies so you know it'd be around somewhere but it just it's too much it's too much for alan to try to revive with a different artist and see if he can find someone that could could really consistently do the art you know yeah well and and, and certainly doesn't seem i mean it seems like something that maybe i don't know if you pick this up from him or just some that's in your nature as well but just that doesn't seem like the type of creator to want to go back, right? Is always no. kind of moving forward. No. Um, there was there was a quote that you had that I remember reading that um, it seemed like Marvel. Oh, like they asked you to revisit the century, maybe, um, or, or certain characters. In, it was the Inhumans. In like it was the Inhumans in the twenty tens. Yeah, yeah. And and the mm-hmm. quote was like, you know, I'm not I'm not a person that goes back. Uh, mm-hmm. I really respected that kind of not necessarily want it because you could cash in on that nostalgia and you could have success with that um where do you think that comes from like what what, why why would you not want to do that in that way or didn't at that time at least um that's a fantastic question thanks i I like that question because i think good good. i think that um i don't know if i'm quirky i might be quirky maybe don't know but but i think i'm principled and um for example i don't seek money i've never been a millionaire i'm not missing anything you know and if it comes okay great you know i'm trying really hard to to provide for my family but i've often said that i think that um that why we do this is is a is sort of an equation and there's no bad part to this equation i think we do it for one of three reasons money 
attention and the creativity. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, I was too quirky in that attention for me was a zero. That was a zero, but I, I could care less. And I, I love fans and I always talk to fans and try to be, you know, see people at eye level and all that. Um, but I didn't need to go on a red carpet. I didn't need to have attention paid to me. Maybe attention paid to my work. Maybe it's a 1%. I want people to pay attention to my work. Money was maybe 5% and creativity was 95% of why I did it. I was just driven yeah. by wanting to create. I changed that because now I have a family. So you have to put money more into the equation. I need to earn money to be able to live and, and support my family. Right. But I, you know, I, I think that, you know, I was just a quirky person that, that wouldn't really chase uh, this attention and try to cash in. And so I have learned now at my age, after having done this for, for as long as I've done it, to absolutely insist that I follow my instincts creatively and professionally, because I feel like I'm constantly compromised by other people telling me you have to do it this way. And now I try it that way. And I'm like, it just is not working out. It's not working either creatively or, or that business didn't work out. So I, I tended to want to follow my own instincts. And one of my instincts was that there's no way for me to write the Inhumans and have anybody see even the first issue or the entire thing in any kind of lens that would approach the way they saw the first series. They loved mm -hmm. that series, but it became iconic. It was a work of genius. And I was like, it wasn't really, it was just, a, it was a book. But the way that people talked about it, they saw it all with rose colored glasses. So imagine then comparing the new episode of Inhumans, the artist wouldn't have been able to live up to what we did with Jay. Even if Jay and I had done it, we, they just would have said, it's not as good. It doesn't make me feel as good as the first one. Yeah, that's right. because time has changed. And so it's not necessarily whether or not we're good at it. It's it's you wouldn't see it the same way. So no, don't go back and do that. You know, now that's yeah. not true of the century because I have a lot of century work that I never finished and that I want to do. So, um, for example, it wouldn't be true of Spider-Man. I could go back and write Spider-Man tomorrow and I'd have 100 issues. I, I love that character. So it just it just is true of the Inhumans. Which one which one would excite you more to go back to century or Spider-Man? Well, Sentry's mine, you know, it's my character. You know, I created him. I, I think Sentry would be slightly more exciting. I'm, I'm not sure. I'd, no, about equal. Because because Spider-Man, I could do in my sleep. And I loved Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. I could do... The, the only thing is, they might not like me doing what I'd want to do, which is go back to doing single issues, because I love and adore single issue stories. And I think this industry absolutely needs it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, that's definitely one thing that I really have come to love and appreciate about your spidey work is those one-off moments everything feels not everything but generally there's a contained unit approach you know especially yeah, obviously the poker issue is super famous and spectacular spider-man which is incredibly fun um but then you have you know so many throughout the peter parker spider-man run with with mark buckingham where um it's not a part of a larger tapestry it's not driving to the next big thing right it's just telling us even the goblin stuff um, which is some yeah. of my favorite, which is, you know, it takes a few issues, right? Because it's, it's big story stuff. Um, I, to me, that shapes so much of modern Norman Osborn, Peter Parker understanding. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know the exact timeline between like the movie and, and your comics with the Goblin stuff. But like certainly in my head, there's a pretty direct correlation <laughs> between the ways they interpreted it and yeah. what you would put on the page. Um, but it stands out as, as single unit kind of story. Uh, what what do you think 
how do you think that approach today, um, or I guess when you say it's needed, it's necessary in comics, like, like, why do you think that is? Like, what do you think the value is in those? Because it's not, even now, it's not super common, frankly. No. Um, I, I think that this industry is is very much an industry where the definition of insanity applies. Make the same mistake <laughs> yeah. repeatedly with the expectation of a different result. Um, also, it's the creative industry, and so let's if we think that something is is potent, is slightly successful, let's go beat that horse and not do anything new. Yeah. But what was the success of Marvel Knights? It was literally taking all the stuff that had been failing and doing something different and new with it. Take a risk. Do a story that hasn't been done. I'll I'll never forget having a conversation with somebody at DC early in my career where they told me, and they meant it, not in a bad way. I took it really badly for a long time until I realized this is just the truth of their situation, that if Alan Moore had pitched them Watchmen, they would have rejected it now. Mm. Like, it's... I'd say no, because I don't know if I can do it. And, and and I used to complain. I used to say, you know, I remember having a conversation with Grant one time. And he said, you know, he said, like, walk in and I pitch Arkham Asylum and we do Arkham Asylum and it's great. And I say, hey, I want to do a, a follow up to that. And they're like, well, Grant, I don't know. It's like, really? Are you sure you don't know that that we that we repeatedly succeed and so when we come in as creators and we say i think this would be a good idea to do and they go mm, i'm not sure about that well you should be a bit more sure you know you should realize that we have a, a pretty good body of work and we're pretty good at what we do and so i think <clears throat> you know we just have to realize that creators have good instincts at times and that you know listening to that is is helpful especially the very successful creators you know like we, I think that single issue stories are the ultimate expression of of storytelling because comics are just an economical way of of telling a story, and they're really hard to write. Novelists and filmmakers and screenwriters and that find out to their cost when they try to to do comics just how hard they are. They are frozen moments in time juxtaposed against each other. And trying to encapsulate an entire idea into one issue is really hard. But I loved it. That was my gem, right? And um, yeah. I know that to this day, you're right about the Goblin story. It was four issues, actually. But to this day the book that I've signed the most is probably Wolverine origin, but the book that I've signed second is a single issue of Peter Parker, Spider-Man about a baseball game. And mm. fans come up to me about that issue constantly. And they're almost always crying or really, really emotional because yeah. it's just about Peter Parker going to a baseball game with uncle Ben a couple of days before uncle Ben dies. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that we need to get back to that and that should be a big focus because if you want to actually bring in an audience and, and retain them, you, you've got to stop deconstructing these things that take 12 issues. To, because I can't take anybody into a comic store sometimes. And I, I used to say this. If I took my wife in and I blindfolded her, spun her around and said, walk towards the wall. And the first thing you find you're going to read, I guarantee she wouldn't be a comic book reader because she'd pick it up and it'd right. be issue 7 or 12 and she wouldn't have anything. Right? So we need yeah. to do better. The comic industry needs to go back to single issues and access issues and stuff like that. And that's what I did with Mythos. That's what I did with Thor, Heaven and Earth. 
that's what I did with Captain America, Theater of War, Spider-Man. I constantly wrote single issues and I wish, I wish that we would do that again. Yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely more welcoming. I mean, certainly as a, as a thing, like you said, like especially on a comic shop level. I mean, yeah, good luck walking in and picking up <laughs> issue 17 of an ongoing run. I mean, it's mm-hmm. such a challenge. Um, okay, so you talked, you mentioned there, you know, obviously the, the excitement of the Century, a character you created. You created Century, um, you do that with, with Jay Lee uh, as part of the Marvel Knights. There's a whole hoopla and marketing fiasco that goes on at that time about this is the long lost Stan Lee character and all. How how involved were you in the in sort of the trickery of it? Because I think readers now, you know, you just pick up the book, right? They read it. They aren't there for the Wizard Magazine spectacle yeah. of it all. What was that like? So to describe it, you know, we 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 worked on it early. We basically just created a char- a, a person who was fake, who um, had supposedly created the century with Stan Lee back in the day, right at the time that Stan was doing Fantastic Four and all this other stuff. Here comes the mythical Artie Rosen. And Artie Rosen was the artist. Of course, Artie didn't exist. And it was actually made up. I made the name up from two letterers from back in the day, Artie Simek. The famous letterers, yeah. And so Artie Rosen, and then we did this thing in Wizard Magazine where Blanche Rosen, uh, like, like Artie Rosen had died in the story, and Blanche, his wife, had discovered a folder full of old stuff, and it had this stuff in it, and no one had seen it since Stan and Artie had created it. And so the story was that I found it in, in the Marvel you know, offices and said, can I look at this stuff? And everybody's like, yeah, I don't know what that stuff is. No one could really take the time because the whole thing about it was we weren't supposed to read it that was the whole mythology because the century had been you know banished and we weren't supposed to bring the century back so all of this was really clever and i was terrible at it because because (laughs) i'm 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 the most transparent liar and the moment that I lie, like my wife looks at me and go, you're lying, aren't you? I'm like, oh, come on, man. And we would sit at shows and Joe Casada's a fantastic liar, right? He's really good at it. And I don't mean that about it, just being yeah, affectionate yeah. about it. But basically, Joe would sit there and he would just spin this yarn and, you know, he'd sort of tell it. And then he'd turn to me and he'd go, tell him, Paul. And I'd just turn into a puddle of jelly. So they, I think they could kind of cut me <laughs> off after a while and just said, yeah, let's, not, let's not have Paul do that at conventions because he's really bad at it. You know? um, but it was fantastic. We, we promoted it. The promotion reflected the way the story went. And it was very, I mean, I, I think look to this day and go, like, what we did with the century in terms of the content, the book, the story, the marketing, the show, it was really clever. And I'm mm-hmm. very proud of it. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that work. Um, it definitely is. I mean, I, that whole Marvel Knights era, I think, is so transformative in terms of a certain maturation of what Marvel mm-hmm. comics can be. And just yep. like you said, like just the the willingness to take risks and how welcoming that is, you know. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, publishers come and go in terms of whether they're doing, you know, ba- basically, unless their back is against the wall, they tend to be pretty conservative. You know, and their back was against the wall. Their back was exactly. They, they had. They were in chapter eleven. They were moments from chapter seven. I mean, they were really struggling. They were trying to sell their entire library for a million dollars. Nobody would yeah. buy it because they couldn't. They couldn't take on Toy Biz, which was the albatross around the neck of the company. And so, when a company like corporation like that is in trouble, they go to the last resort, and the last resort is to reach out to idiots like me and say, "Okay, we broke it so thoroughly. Is there any chance you could you could do that wizardy stuff you do and help us fix it?" That's it. Yeah. 
how how hard was it to get um, a series pushing a new character? Because you know, with the Inhumans, it's like a salvage project, right? But it's some, it's a property that exists. I mean, there aren't a heck of a lot of new characters created at this time. Yeah, so virtually um, how, impossible is the answer. Yeah, like, yeah. They basically rejected that character for six, seven years before I did it. They they reject the whole. I hadn't worked for Marvel, but I had pitched to Marvel one time mm-hmm. and it was pitching the 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 uh the century i'd gone mm. to an editor at marvel i'd gone to an editor at dc and i said like i really want to do a new character and, and it actually played out like this i actually wanted to write the hour man for dc because it's character mm. fascinated with and i went to karen burger and i said i'd really like to write a version of our man but it was very superhero-y a bit and she wasn't that into it she didn't really think that she said though you know why don't you create a new character to tell that story because i think that story is amazing and it Mm. was the story of the century it was a story of a person addicted to their own power Uh, if you take a look at the first issue of the century you'll find that the evolution of the century mirrors a life of drug experimentation and 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 reliance so it, yeah. it mirrors a drug trip you start off anything goes in the 60s then it gets trippy in the 70s then it gets really down and dirty and gritty in the 80s and 90s and then it yeah. kind of changes right so we were we were using the evolution of comics as a, as a to mirror a drug experience we did like some crazy stuff in that book yeah no and it, it works so well i mean so it's funny you know you mirror the the history of comics so well but you talk about you know that's not necessarily your background right so was it was it sort of just like you know because it's not like you're not in the industry right you're, you're editing and you're writing and like you know the general certain tenor certainly of what comics were like in this era but was it like the addiction was sort of driving and then the comics part of it came second because as comics obsessives I see it and I'm like oh they're doing the 60s you know century in the 60s and there's that styling but what actually like what was like the priority? Well, it was probably the addiction, I'm guessing. I'm the addiction was level. priority, but I saw the connection and then the rest of it is yeah. research, right? If I don't know a lot about comics, I just go back and research them and find out how they were written, what they looked like, sure. what the tone was. So, you know, you can do a lot if you're diligent and you do a lot of research. Sure, sure, sure. So just the study and the work. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, no, it's cool. No, Century's such a, a good character. So have you liked, did you like the direction of, you know, you do this character and is very idiosyncratic and like you said addicted to his own power and this tremendous threat that the world has to forget were you a fan of then century getting moved into the avengers line of work and and out of your control which is always a hard thing i'd imagine with big two um yeah i was a fan of it i'm, I'm not that worried about control i'm too quirky <laughs> i just i don't think that. <laughs> okay. i don't follow those same things i i did it for the time that i did it and I told the stories the way that I would. Now think about this. I, I've seen a lot of comic creators do this. I think it's a terrible mistake. I wish, I wish that there was more um, support for each other. But I've seen, you know, a couple of noted comic book creators like fight each other publicly by sabotaging each other's stories in their in their issues. And I'm like, what are you doing, right? Yeah. yeah. I wrote the century, and when I finished my version of the century. Anyone can write the century, and and that's their version of the century. Just like my version of Spider-Man is the way that I see him, but when I finish, you know, Spectacular number twenty-three, and someone takes over with Spectacular number twenty-four, that's their version of Spider-Man. It's not it's not for me to comment on whether or not 
Um, I like their work. And especially, would I have done that? The answer is no, because my brain is different from their brain, right? Yeah. So you know, have to have kind of some respect for the way that people do it. And so I did the century the way that I did. Brian uh, uh, actually did something pretty good for the century because by putting the century in the Avengers, he made the century mean something. And, and I've seen him interviewed. I've actually talked to him a couple of times about it. Um, if I'm not mistaken, he said that at one point someone said to him, there are no new characters in Marvel. There are no good new characters. And he's like, there are plenty of good new characters. Look, we got the Sentry, for example. Let's go use mm. that. And so yeah. it was almost a challenge intellectually for Brian to bring out the Sentry and make him mean something. And he's super meaning. I mean, that character is incredibly meaningful throughout the 2010s then by virtue of being a part of the Avengers landscape. I mean, yeah. it does drive a lot of attention. I, I have to think that that your miniseries, certainly retroactively, like when people like me are asked, what should I read? Century is elevated in importance because you're like, not only is it good, but it actually, that you're going to need to know that character because yeah. they're coming. So it does help in, in that regard, I think, as well. Um, <clears throat> no, that's cool. That's cool. You mentioned having additional Century stories, additional unfinished mm -hmm. business. I'm guessing you don't want to give it away, but like what kind of stuff are you, do you, do you wish you could go back and do or, or have the chance to do now rather? Yeah, even even the well, first of all, you know, I was intending to do three miniseries, right, to begin, and that would just be the beginning of it. The first one I did, the second one I did, and I, and and it's funny because the second one didn't get the attention of the first one, and I'm really proud of the second one. I think and that's the, second the, one, the age of the century. Is that right? Uh, no, the second one. I'm not sure what it was called, but it was the one where he, at a certain point, is led to believe that he's actually just got mental health issues, and that okay. he's in a, yep. he's in a you know, facility, and they're treating him for his schizophrenia. And, you know, he's been persuaded that all of this is, is a delusion. And I think his doctor is saying to him, look, you know, Robert, you know, you have this delusion, like a, a giant green man that relies on you, um, people dressed in capes, and you come to save the world. All of this is very typical for for a person in your circumstances. You have to move away from this. And it's really compelling. I think it's very convincing because the sentry gets within just one second of thinking, or Robert Reynolds says, you know, yeah, maybe maybe you're right, Doc. Maybe I am. This isn't anything, you know. And then he suddenly sees that he has a, a mark on his... Um, on his finger where his wedding ring is supposed to be, but he's been told by his doctors that he's not married. And that idea was thought of by my wife who doesn't read mm. comics and has nothing to do with any of this. And I'd run the story by her and told her I was, and she came up with that in a second. And her name is Melinda. Cause she's actually Lindy Lee. She's, she's mm. the, she's Lindy from the century. So it's funny, it all ties together. So I had that first series. I thought the second one I was really proud of. And the third one was going to be now that he knows he's the sentry and he is the void. The big thing for the sentry, just, you know, I have a theory about the sentry and I'm hopeful for that character in the Marvel Universe. I think that Black Panther was a seminal moment for an entire group of people that wanted to see themselves reflected as, as, as superheroes and have their moment, you know? Yeah. And I believe that the century is equally important for people who are dealing with mental health issues or have family members who have mental health issues if done right. And if I had been able to complete it, it would have been about how there is such ambiguity in the issue of mental health and that we, 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 
villainize people because they have mental health issues. But what we should understand is that people with mental health issues have complexities that we should address and help and understand. And that was what the century was going to be about. It was going to be about like, I, I have to navigate myself, the duality of me. I am the century, I am the void. And I have yeah. to try to win that battle before I can win other battles. Mm. Mm. And that's yeah, where no. he's a valuable character. And that's where, he sh that's where he should live in the Marvel Universe now. Yeah, right. Well, and definitely there's been a struggle, I think, really since the Brian Michael Bendis era ended to figure out, okay, now what do we do? <laughs> what do we do with this this individual? Um, <laughs> it's funny, as you're describing it, so much of what you're describing that you did with Century has been subsequently sort of emphasized with Moon Knight, actually, yeah. yes. um, in both comics and, and the MCU. But I think with the Century, the thing you have that you don't have with Moon Knight is the power level and the 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 dark side if you will and i'm putting that in quotes and i know that's not the proper terminology but like it is so big <laughs> and it is such a threat that it really really emphasizes i think sort of that complexity of of figuring out you know how do you navigate this which is tricky okay cool um so yeah those those are definitely great reads definitely recommend people check those out uh we do have to talk a little bit about wolverine origins um the main the, obviously this, this is like probably the biggest thing that you did i mean I'm, at the time it was a huge seller the origins of wolverine hadn't been told at that time how do you feel about it uh you know almost 20 about 20 years later now um about like the work that was put out there because i know at the time like there's a thing where it's it's you it's joe quesada you got bill Jameis. like there's a lot of hands in the kitchen how do you feel about the work as it as it stands um Another good question. It, it is, it is, it's probably best to say this. I, I'm, I'm proud of that work, but if you had been back there, you would have realized how bonkers it was. And you have to understand like the context of the time, maybe. Yeah. First of all, it came about cause I'm a punk and I'm standing around, you know, I've obviously I've told this story a few times, but just to re recapsulate it, um, I'm standing around at Joe's first Marvel editorial meeting. He's the editor-in-chief. Everybody's gone there. The editors all think they're going to get fired because these were the pink slip days. And so, and Joe and Bill had no intention of firing anybody. They were like, we want, we want to empower you. And so I'd spent the morning sitting at the back because Joe had asked me to come and Bill was fine with me coming. I, I got on pretty well with Bill. And, um, and I stood at the back and I apparently was looking grumpy and Bill came up to me at lunch and he said, you're, you know, considering that you're a pretty affable guy, Paul, why you look so annoyed? Am I allowed to swear? Because I'll give you the... Can I swear <laughs> yeah, on your... Sure. Yep. I'll give you what I actually said to him. He said, why Why do you look annoyed? And I said, because you're supposed to be the fucking house of ideas and every time someone comes up with a good one, you say no. Mm. And that's exactly the way they had been. If there was any good idea suggested, floated out, anything that took a risk, everybody went, everybody flipped out. And he said, you can't do that. And so I said to Joe, I said to Bill, you, no one's yet said why you can't do that. You just say we can't do it like it's going out of style. You can do those things. You can do something interesting. And he said, well, what do you have in mind? And I said, like, like you say you can't do the origin of Wolverine. And he said, I was just thinking that. that you know, he had had the same thought, and it was about that character. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, yeah, you say, like, you can't do the origin of Wolverine. 
but you can just tell the origin, do a couple of bits and, and explain some of the things. Cause he can't walk around for 35 years, scratching his head. So I don't know where I came from. Mm-hmm. Right. You, at that point you've worn it out. You're terrified of your own character, but why are they afraid of their own characters? You should be able to do all the things that, because I, I know why, because they become a, a method of sort of like business delivery. Hey, we put these out and make sure you don't violate the beauty and truth that is Captain America. And I'm a Brit and I don't care. I read 2008 D, you know, my job is to <laughs> violate it, Bill. And so, you know, but I didn't really mean that. I was being facetious. But ultimately it was like all that Wolverine Origin did was tell the story of, of what, where he was born, what his name was, who his parents were, what his real name was and my favorite part of it was was why did he forget mm-hmm. so what happened was i said look you know what why don't this is in the meeting right why don't we do this thing where where like um he is you know the reason that he forgets is because he's got a healing factor and so his brain goes messed up and then it papers over the cracks and heals and now he can't remember anything and they were like say that again and i said well what that's that's what you do right that's the story right because i'm stupid and i didn't realize they hadn't worked it out and they they basically (laughs) didn't have any understanding of why he'd forgotten they had written themselves into that corner they didn't know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so me saying oh i thought that's what it did and they're like no but that sounds great we should do that that's sure. how it came about and sure. the, big, yeah. the biggest shame is i love that book but the first three issues are very much me mm-hmm. if you read them it's almost like two books the first three issues are paul yeah. jenkins with andy cubert and the second three issues are very much me being told we need this we need that because it got really popular and when the first issue came out and sold out on the first day of sale across the world they went like we need to tell you now how to do a bunch of stuff and i was mm. like why do you do that you don't need to do that we do, we're doing great thanks here's an idea why don't you extend this mini series to like 12 we could just do more if you want to do all that stuff but no we kind of shoehorned it into those last three issues and it was too dense yeah. so i like the first three a little more than i like the second three because it's actually you i see i see mm. that's interesting um yeah, it's kind of a victim of its own success in that regard, right? Where it's now you actually have sales numbers, and it's like, wait, this is huge, uh, which of course it would be, like, yeah. a, like how you could, like, if, like you had to. I, I don't know. Was it was it bigger than you expected? Even like, did it get more attention than you expected, or did you anticipate that? I guess re, re, like hindsight is twenty twenty, so it's like, yeah, of course, but maybe not. I'm like too stupid. I always say that. Right? I'm always like realizing how quirky I am that I didn't care. Yeah, yeah, I was sort of like, okay, whatever. Like, if it sells, great. And then it was the number one selling comic book in ten years. It was like the big book. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, you know. But it's it's a lot. My reaction was the same to me breaking into comics by never having written anything. I'm like, all right. So now what? Right? Like, what's the point? Yeah. And, and, yeah. And I guess it's just yes, it did really well. Did you have right. stuff that you wanted to do? that you didn't get to because all of a sudden there's all these demands like what like what kind of direction would you have wanted it yeah i had the sequel i had the sequel and the sequel sequel. i promise you the sequel was genius yeah can you talk about what what might have been in there at all yeah yeah because they did a sequel so they've lost it now there's no chance yeah origin 2 is out there it exists uh yeah i can tell you what the story was i mean basically i wanted to do this thing where if you think that you know this was 18 
I want to say that we had him born in the 1970s or 1880s, I think, yeah, in uh, in Alberta, Canada, um, which is only contextually 20 or 30 years after the Civil War in America. And what I wanted to do was to show this whole origin of stuff that had been building before this movement where the first mutants had come into existence and people were beginning to see that there was this mutant thing happening and these people. Mm -hmm. And so there's an organization that tries to basically take them and use them for their own goods. So now I'm going to mm -hmm. put a picture in your mind. Imagine the Confederate flag. What shape is it in? That's an X. It's an X. And so mm -hmm. is Weapon X. So the story was going to be that Weapon X was the Confederacy. And they were trying to bring the South back. And they had seized upon this opportunity. I think that would have been a tremendous story. Right? It would have been an everything story. But it's the kind of story that if you just start realizing that a corporation uh, sometimes gets really worried about things like that. Um, it's the same oh, yeah. as true with a bunch of other new characters. I wanted to do a bunch of new characters that eventually became alters. Um, probably 20 years ago i wanted to do superheroes and x-men type characters that basically had these powers but they all had a, a form of a disadvantage or disability uh, whether it be a societal disadvantage so perhaps it's you know a question of their sexuality um right. you know a, a, a lead transgender character um somebody with cerebral palsy all of these people have a disadvantage or a disability of of sorts ADHD, depression, and I wanted them to be a group of superheroes because then, the, you know, you you get the the, high, the superpower and you get the the disadvantage or the hyper-advantage, disadvantage, and really it's a collision of the person in the middle. And, and they just wouldn't do new characters again. And I'm like, if you'd have done that, we would have that group that would have spoken to mm -hmm. Marvel of today. But instead, I publish them as mm -hmm. alters. Yeah, it's alters your Aftershock series, which, I mean, definitely has a strong... Um, yeah, X Men, new superhero universe, kind of, yep. kind of undercurrent, right? But, but with characters yep. that don't get the spotlight. You know, the first few issues focus on this transgender character, which, mm -hmm. um, which even obviously now is a hot button issue for folks. But it's, but it's great to see that representation on the page and to see characters who don't get that spotlight get it. Um, how it, with alters, I felt like you were having, you're doing a lot of like important. Um, representation and commentary just on terms of who can, who can be the hero of a story, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think is useful. But at the same time, that felt like a book that you were having a lot of fun with, mm -hmm. like with, um, with, with like matter, matter man yeah. and stuff. And, yeah. and, and, you know, just like very, very campy sort of superhero, you know, nature to that character. Um, did you, I don't know, like, was that, was that a blast for you? Um, how fun was it to get to kind of create your own superhero universe whole cloth? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've created my universes quite often, so I, I love that. I always love it. Um, yeah. I would say that uh, it, it was it was incredibly difficult to write each issue because I am not a trans person. And so um, I heard early on uh, some pushback, and the pushback was from some people in the trans community who said, who's that person to write trans characters? And the answer was, yeah. my answer was, first of all, don't make assumptions, right? And second of all, you know, my qualification to write a story about anybody is that I'm a human being and I'm a writer, right? So if I'm supposed to write who I am, my trite little way of saying it was great, then if I'm supposed to only write who I am, then you're going to write an awful lot of stories about a middle-aged dad with a couple of kids, a bad leg, and who plays golf a lot, right? Good luck with those stories. They're shit. <laughs> I don't want to tell, I don't want to read those stories. 
I'm supposed mm -hmm. to be able to observe the human condition, understand people. And then, and second of all, and as I pointed out in the, some of the interviews I did at the time, you know, don't make assumptions about like me because I wrote the second issue of Alters about a homeless person. And then I, after, you know, 25 years of living and working in this industry, I admitted that as a kid, I was homeless repeatedly. I grew up in extreme poverty and, you know, my mum is, is, uh, you know, in the LGBT community, she's a single mom. Um, I, you know, and she had a partner who eventually was trans, you know? And so, you know, don't, don't think that I, that I don't know. And, but, but that being said, I also had a ton of support from the trans community more, much more support. You know, I just didn't appreciate the feedback because the feedback is really naive. You have to write who you are is, rubbish shakespeare could never have written othello because he wasn't a black muslim dude was he right you know yeah, so right. so let's be clear so alters was important for me as a person but i think it was an important thing and here's what i have to say about this whole trans thing i put a trans character in one of my books in 1998 in the in the agency there's a character called sue and the only reason you don't actually know she's trans because i didn't talk we didn't say anything she just was a trans character like, it wasn't important to say hey we've got a trans character in our book instead by the time we get to the point it's obvious she's trans and that's okay and she was one of the characters i found more than anything that writing about chalice the trans character was a great story before anything else and that's the reason why i do things i found that the secret identity issue is very much a metaphor for some of the issues that people who are trans go through as they work through their identity you know it's an identity thing and so i thought that that highlighting how the challenges of trying to establish your identity and and be true to your who you really are are, are very much highlighted when you put them in in the context of a superhero but that's just me i guess i'm too cerebral you know no i mean the the identity layer was certainly noticeable i think reading that i mean it's it's very you have multiple identities that are being concealed mm. right in the in the early going of alters and you can i think it's it's funny because it's like it works as metaphor but it's also a very literal yeah. serious real issue right that a lot of folks trans folks in particular are confronted with in terms of like just the challenges of telling family um, of the fear of how they're going to receive it, you know? And then obviously that's something you build on altars where you have a, a dad, especially, who seems like, well, they're not going to take this well, right? And that, that drama and that tension is built and baked into, okay, what happens when, when either of these identities come out? Because it feels like both of them are going to be received right. poorly. Yeah, that she that feels relatable. She could only be herself when she wasn't herself. She could only really be the person she is in costume, which is not who she is. And there, there, mm -hmm. there was a plan. There is a plan, I suppose, if I get back to alters at some point, for how they react. And what I wanted to do was to really do something that I think is meaningful, that when she finally, at the end of issue 10, which is the last one published, she tells her parents, listen, I want you to read my diary. This is what's going on with me. You probably noticed yeah. I'm, I'm, things are changing with me. And that when the dad reads it, instead of being the cliche, which is what I set up, I set it up so that the dad would be the cliche guy who says, you, you know, no son of mine's going to dress like a girl and all that stuff. And, and that's not what I was going to do with him. The dad was going to go, okay, I'm going to give it a shot. I'll try. Mm -hmm. I'm a lifelong Cleveland 
Browns fan. You know, I'm a lifelong, you know, man's man. And yet my son is becoming my daughter. I'll try. Whereas the mum, who you think would be the most accepting, is terrified because she thinks her family's been turned upside down. And so she reacts badly. And because, because that's actually the way that people act. You don't know until it all happens, you know? Right. Sure. Sure. No, that's the thing. That's the thing. Um, okay. <clears throat> Very good. So, all right. I think we've covered most of the big stuff. Uh, I did have an interesting question here from a, a listener. And I know we're coming up on time, so I want to be respectful of that. But Tyler H. asked... As a lifelong Georgia resident, it caught my eye that in 2015, Georgia's governor asked you to chair an advisory committee to the state's General Assembly on Interactive Technologies. Because mm-hmm. um, you have a lot of experience. Like, we're talking comics, obviously, and that's my my focus. But, like, you have a lot of experience with video games and interactive media and all this, this cool stuff. Uh, so the question from Tyler is, what was that experience like? And, um, you know, do you like pivoting away from all this comics talk to the bigger picture of digital media? Like, does that is that really where your, your attention's at a lot of times these days? Well, first of all, I'm happy to go as long as you want, but if it's an hour, then it's an hour. Um, okay. Secondly, yes, that's a that's a great question. I mean, basically, I'm not any media. Um, I work in film, animation, television, comic books, video games, new media. I just did a bunch of NFT stuff, and NFT stuff is is wildly misunderstood right now. And maybe mm-hmm. I, you know, I quite like evangelizing for what it actually is, as opposed to what people have seen it be, because there's a lot of negativity around NFTs, and that negative negativity is completely deserved because of the way the industry started developing. Right? Um, you know, yeah. it was a mess. So go back to the actual question. Yeah, I really liked it. I I don't do politics, right? So imagine that you got some old punk who's introduced to the, what I did was I did a, a lecture. A, a, I love to lecture and sort of talk about the future of storytelling. I do it at futurism conventions. I do it. I'm about to do one at Kennesaw State University here in Georgia, um, mid February, and and it's uh, you know we have new technologies and new storytelling delivery tools right it changes all the time look at look at ai art right ai writing this is just a new tool it's a new mechanism for delivery so at the time i had just done a a speech and it was about the brain drain and i thought it was really fascinating to me that on this panel of people at, at georgia state university there were five or six people talking about the brain drain one person from LA, a bunch from Georgia, and there was one person who was standing up for creators, as usual, uh, which was me. And I'm an immigrant to this country, and I'm an immigrant to this state, and I was trying to talk about the protecting the brain drain and not sending our young people just out to LA so they can stand in a line behind loads of other people that look just like them and try to get a job and hope, whereas we could build this industry here in Georgia, because, you know, Georgia's the number one filmmaking state in the country and has been for a number of years, right, in terms of just being a destination. So after this is all over, and I've been a punk, and sort of this, this woman from LA basically said, what you need to do, this is on the panel, in front of a giant audience of like people with giant brains. And this is another direct quote, um, she said, what you need to do is to send them to us in LA where they need to have their hearts broken and their dreams crushed. And if they're still standing after five years, that's when I would consider them realistically employable. And my response on the panel was, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> and I yelled at this lady. Awful. I went full on like Oprah Winfrey, wag my finger. Let me tell you something, honey. Right, I, I use that. I mean, I can't believe it, but I was just like genuinely offended. Are you kidding me? 
So I sat there and I yelled at this lady, and then I, and and really, obviously, it, it became clear that the one person sticking up from Georgia was this British immigrant who, who swore too much. And so, after the thing, this lady comes up to me and she said, "I, I just want to let you know that that I really liked what you said, and I agree with you." And I said, "Okay, thanks, I appreciate it." And she said, "You know, my dad would love to hear from you about that." And I said, "That sounds great." And she said, "No, you don't understand. My dad's the governor of Georgia." <laughs> <laughs> it was his daughter um and so they introduced me to the governor i'm supposed to have like 20 minutes i end up in his office for an hour and a half and he looks at me at one point and says you know would this is fascinating i think you're right we should build the, this homegrown stuff would you be willing to chair an advisory committee on it and i said absolutely because you know i don't do politics but when one of the 50 people in the world is a, the governor of an entire state asks you to do your civic duty you say yeah so I said, yeah, absolutely. And then I literally left and opened my phone up and put in a Google search for what is an advisory committee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was fantastic. It was really good. Um, I care about all media and I like to mentor. So I have a company called Meta Studios, M-E-T-A. And we, yes, we were founded in 2014. So we beat Mark Zuckerberg to it. I, I had this okay. brand like coin called, <laughs> yeah. called Meta Media. And I think it's just this abstract overview of all media. But Meta is an anagram, is, is a, oh, my, my brain's on fire this morning. Um, it, it stands for media, not an anagram. It, it stands for media, education, technology, and advancement, right? Advancement is really important to me, bringing the creative community forward. Education is really important. And so, you know, it was a thrill to do that advisory committee. Um, but I also learned about what it's like to be around politics mm. is why I'm an old punk and why I don't do it. And it's kind of pathetic. No, yeah, it's a self enrichment scam basically. So, you know, Sounds, yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing the, the ambition of trying to do things was met with the wall of politics and things probably didn't, <laughs> didn't go super far. Is I that right? I would say, I would say that I had the privilege and I'm, and I really consider it to be a privilege of of sitting near the governor when he and his chief of staff went through our findings and we gave good advice and the governor found himself unable to do some of the things that i had suggested or we'd recommended with our committee but our committee was fantastic we had the most amazing people on it we our findings were delivered within a year to a year and a half and And we had subcommittees. We did all the work we were supposed to do. We, we, we provided an opportunity for the state to create, you know, for example, the, the George Film Academy, right? Mm -hmm. um, but sitting there with the governor and listening to him to explain that he couldn't do this really, really good thing we'd suggested because the Tea Party wouldn't like it. It wasn't even, it wasn't even the Democrats that were the other side. You know, he was a Republican. It wasn't the Democrats that were going to stand against him. It would cause a problem with the Tea Party because they don't like tax credits. And you're sitting there and you're going, it would be like the equivalent of saying, like, we should really help children with cancer, but we're not going to do it because this group decides it's not politically convenient. You're sitting like, everybody wants to do that. So it, it, yeah. it also upset me as well, being involved in that stuff. It was pretty. Difficult. Yeah. That infighting yeah. and all that. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a bummer. But uh, no, it's an interesting experience. Yeah, and I was mm-hmm. I was excited to see that question because it's a good one. Um, okay, so uh, we've covered we've covered a heck of a lot. Um, what do you What do you got up next? What do you have going on that you wanna wanna make sure people know about? Well, I don't do a lot of promotion, but there is actually one thing that I would promote that I'm doing right now. Um, so so let me tell you what I'm doing. Um, l- let me quickly go to NFTs since I mentioned it. Right, um, NFTs are very yeah. much misunderstood right now because the the worst thing that could have happened for them is what happened. You had a bunch of people doing finding out that they be, could become millionaires or pull in millions of dollars in cryptocurrencies in the heyday mm-hmm. of the, the cryptocurrency because they could just say, we're going to do a project. We're going to do a project. It's called Fluffy Frogs and just buy a Fluffy Frog JPEG and we're going to do a project with it, which is bollocks because they weren't going to do a project with it, but they were all like hiding behind screen names. Nothing was, was doxxed like I am. Everyone knows who I am and where I live. So there wasn't this like professional attachment to the delivery of content. It was just free for all where people were wildly sending their money in based on the hype and the promise. And so to anyone outside of crypto anyway, it looked like the stupid thing that it was, which is just a bunch of 20 year olds making a bunch of money and disappearing off with it. And no one got their project delivered. There's the world is littered with all of these. And how valuable is a JPEG? It's not very valuable, right? We all know that. And so it looked mm. like insanity, which it kind of was. And that's not the whole story of NFTs. It's a it's a fundamental technology that helps you to understand how to own something, how to track something. The blockchain is really useful for keeping something you know safe right you can tie um you know you can tie your identity to a physical product you know there's all kinds of stuff that i'm working with that allow you to do stuff like that and so people thought that that you know when nfts fell down it was because of greed imagine that right what a surprise (laughs) shocking yeah but the fact is that we're in the stage right now that the dot-com business was in in the late ni- mid to late 90s. Dot-com became a thing because you only have to look up and find out that the website that you're on is probably a dot-com or a dot-something, right? The, the technology was great, but the greed was stupid. And so in the dot-com bubble, people were being given tens of millions of dollars to make a website, essentially, mm-hmm. right? And then, of course, that was crap and stupid, and now it's been democratized, and now the business. But but when it blew up, everybody's like, dot-com's useless. It's stupid. What's the point? That's exactly what happened with NFTs. NFTs are stupid. They're useless. What the point? Well, they're an amazing technology. I can do a like, – here's an example of something I can do with an NFT. I can sell you a book, a time travel story, right? You buy that. It belongs to you. I can, I can push a change in the story. So as you read the time travel story, you get to page 40 and I change pages one and two because you've you've interrupted the time stream. And now page one and two is different. And you go back and read it. You're like, hang on a minute. You know, I can do that because the technology allows me to put, you know, to to do a mutable asset that will change as we go. Things like that. Right. So these these are all really cool things. That, and, and you own them. So if, if you have an NFT of a movie, it's not just that you own it and, and it's verified that you own it. It also shows that um that you you can you can rent it you can let other people rent your movie you can make money from it um Mm -hmm. there are all these ways and and especially just tracking things physical product all kinds of stuff like that all all tied into the blockchain but we didn't do it and now there's a resistance to doing it because everybody quite rightly looks at all of these pfp things and just says who needs a jpeg 
Nobody needs a yeah. JPEG. So it's a shame, right? And I really want to kind of evangelize. Now, that being said, well, that's not what I'm evangelizing about right now. I'm doing some NFT-based comics. We're building worlds for some of these people so they have something a bit more solid foundation-wise. But the thing that I'm actually doing that I love right now is something that we did in the heyday that was just a phenomenon. Um, I love treasure hunts and I've always loved treasure hunts and I love making them and I love solving them. And they are the purest form of community-based story. You get a community trying to help each other solve the, the points of a treasure hunt where they love each other and they support each other. And they're like, I found this. And they're all going down these crazy rabbit holes, right? So we did one a couple of years ago and it blew up. We would just have people flying there's a collectible asset to, aspect to it. There's a story aspect to it. And there's a, there's a community aspect. So I'm currently doing a new um, treasure hunt. Um, we are about accepting the first 150 members of it. And we're not even going to sell it like an NFT because that's not what it's intended to be. The NFT technology is just the memorialization that you own a, por a portion of this. Hmm. But essentially, you come in on the treasure hunt. We send you three copies of Fairy Quest, which are the beautiful hardbound, hardcover books of Fairy Quest. So now your investment mm -hmm. brings you a physical product. We send you a clue set that is unique to you. We send you a couple of other things, and there's a physical product that we're working on as well. And you come in, and you have to work with the community to solve this incredible worldwide treasure hunt that will blow your mind as you do it. Um, it's called Another Path. It's on anotherpath.net, and we have a Discord server. And once we get to the first 150 people that sort of buy it, we'll close it down for a minute so they can get going and, and build out because they are essentially funding the creation of the work. And then on a monthly basis, people will come in and start solving the puzzles. And those puzzles are, are a rabbit hole, man. <laughs> they're, they're crazy. So it's called anotherpath.net or another path on Discord. Um, if anybody's interested, I love this. This makes me happy. This is the stuff that I get to apply my brain to that I think everybody just is in love with right now. And the community is awesome. That sounds fun. I mean, that yeah, it's an interesting perspective. I definitely share a lot of the skepticism that you described early with, with NFTs, right? And just the grifter and sort of the, the why do I want a JPEG attitude. But I mean, I think if you, <laughs> when you talk about it in terms of story potential, that's where that's when my ears perk up and I'm like, okay, yeah. like now, like this is not the perspective that I had on it. So healthy degree of skepticism, but it's interesting to hear. No, you're, cor you're correct. You're correct. I completely 100% agree with you. You're absolutely correct to be skeptical because they, they blew it. Right. But that they didn't blow it. They just blew their opportunity and they blew everybody's attention and they blew everybody's stuff. Right. But the fact is, you're correct. <clears throat> now, you're not correct about whether or not NFTs are a scam. They're not a scam. Like, so NFTs is a fundamental technology that you're going to be using in five years anyway. Just like you use .com, right? You're going to be using NFT technology really soon. And with the advent of quantum yeah. computing, you're really going to have to be dealing with it, right? Yeah, I do I do always question, like with ChatGPT too, yeah. you know, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, I can be scared <laughs> of the way that this is going to impact, you know, my job and stuff that I do mm -hmm. and things like that. Or you can start to accept a reality of, okay, technology advances and, and how do we, how do you balance it out? So some, definitely something to, to weigh in consideration there. I think NFT is a similar thing where it's like new tech is kind of inherently scary. I think a lot of times. Um, and then you factor in people that are 
using it as a get rich quick quick uh, get rich quick scheme, you know, and it's like it gets a very negative perception. But then it's like, okay, but then how is this actually going to live and exist in the world? Yeah. Um, yeah. And could there be good things that come out of that? I mean, that is interesting. You, t- you I, touch I on the AI yeah. stuff. I mean, you know, I look at it like this. I actually have some pretty good thoughts about it. I think you know, at least I've certainly had to do it. I, I'm a writer, right? I'm, am I supposed to be afraid? Yeah, yeah. Am I afraid of Chat GPT? No. Like, because they're not me. You know, that will not be me and it won't be able to do things. You know, you're afraid of mid-journey? You shouldn't be because ultimately it can't do a comic book. It can't recreate a character. It doesn't tell a story. You can't do an image on on mid-journey and have it have the elements that you specifically needed to put in the thing. Not really. And you can't then go recreate it for the next sequence of a comic book, for example. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea is that we accept and embrace the fact that it's happening anyway. And we go and we still remain the creative people that we are because our brains aren't wired like other people's. No chat GP is going to be able to write like I do or adapt like I do. So I don't mind. I'm not afraid yeah. of it. Use it as a tool. Yeah. Did you see the um, did you see the Nick Cave uh, chat GPT thing I did not, that he did no. not too long ago? Oh, here, here it's check it out. Google uh, Nick Cave uh, um, chat. It's like somebody sent him lyrics that were written by chat gpt but like the way they funneled the algorithm was like it was in the style of nick cave nice. um so you know he shares these lyrics and then he has he's a really good essay about like like that's nice like it's interesting this tech but uh this thing sucks <laughs> and he's like these lyrics suck and he but he, he really writes a heartfelt mm-hmm. sort of thing that's like it's not me it doesn't have my human experience right. it does it can't do what i can do right so it, it's good I, yeah. I liked i liked the fact that there were these Batman scripts, these movie scripts that had been written, these short films that had been written by a, an AI, and they were so bad, but so brilliant. Mm-hmm. I think there's one scene in the Batman short where the the Joker walks in and Batman picks up Robin and throws Robin at the Joker <laughs> as a weapon. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. it's it's fantastic. It's bonkers. I, I also have a bit to say to my friends and colleagues. Obviously, I understand why you're worried. Um, I wish you weren't. I'm not worried. I'm going to just continue. But I would tell you this, you know, come on, guys. Where were you when Vanilla Ice sampled Queens and David Bowie's Under Pressure and used that sample? Mm-hmm. I didn't hear a word from you then, right? Are you only now so anti-AI because it's affecting your job? Because you should have been there when it was affecting everybody else's job. Like, you can't suddenly wake up and say, I'm so angry and anyone that uses AI is a thief, right? Not really when that has been happening for so long and i never heard a word from you before now right so just embrace it be yourself do your art use it as a tool use it as a reference tool it's gonna happen anyway be excellent instead and don't be afraid of it i think it's a healthy approach i think it's a healthy approach we'll see where it all goes all right paul this has been a pleasure i really appreciate you taking the time to join here um, you share the website. Is there anywhere else that people should find you? Uh, yeah, you can find me at, at my Paul Jenkins on Twitter. Um, I'm sure you can find me somewhere on Facebook. I have no idea what it is. I'm on Instagram and I barely do it because I'm too busy. But I, I'm sort of around it's my Twitter feed. With it's, all that. Especially, yeah, it's hard. I would say if you just really want to have fun, come by another path because I know that once we fill up and get going – Every person that ever did it the first time was like, I'm so glad. It, I've had people come back to me and say, it changed my life mm. doing this treasure hunt. So I think that people will love it if they're, if they're interested in doing such a thing. Cool. Okay. All right, Paul. Thanks so much. Uh, everybody, I'm Dave. You can find my stuff at comicherald.com. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the comics.